This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Maya Stavall about her book, Liquor Store Theater, published by Duke University Press. Dr. Stavall, welcome to the show. Thank you. So your book examines the lives and outlooks of everyday people in Detroit. But before we jump into the book, um, I wanted to just begin with a question of how did you come to write this book? And if you could just give us a brief introduction of, um, of yourself and your, your background. Yes, I was born and raised in Detroit. And my mother's family has been in Detroit since the mid 19th century. So I came I guess uh, through a long journey toward writing this book, um, kind of zooming way out or zooming way in, (laughs) depending on how you look at it, Um, from the perspective of a fourth generation Detroiter and, you know, growing up in Detroit in the 1990s, early 2000s, and uh, observing over the years, shifting narratives of Detroit, shifting perspectives of Detroit, and the really of the United States broadly. So one thing I, I started to notice from an early age was that there's a mythology or, you know, the myths, the stories, and the images that were taught in schools, in books, in media, film, TV, you know, the press, that was really, um, this mythology is central to how we think about the United States and how we think about Detroit. And so, you know, a central myth that I observed early on was the I guess the mythology of Detroit as a pathological or bad um, place, a place that was somehow marked in a negative way in contrast to the Detroit that I experienced growing up and, you know, um, juxtaposed as well with the myth of the United States as a place of democracy and freedom and liberty you know, alongside the reality that the United States is built on white supremacy, 
you know, um, land annexation, um, genocide, and um, human trafficking or enslavement. So, you know, these myths I became aware of at an early age. And, you know, as I was growing up in Detroit, it was a culturally, ecologically, and politically complicated place. So inside the city limits without even leaving Detroit, you could walk nature trails, you could look across the river and see another country, Canada. You know, you could watch the sunrise over the river. You can buy and grow organic produce. You could visit world-class art museums. You could attend peaceful protests. Um, you know, you could actually take part in city life in a powerful way. And so I also um, had the experience of attending elementary school in one of Detroit's most racist and exclusive inner ring suburbs, Gross Point. And so I went to an independent private school in Gross Point, uh, of course, where students, you know, came to attend from all over what is referred to the southeastern Michigan area or metropolitan Detroit. And so the perceptions of Detroit that I'd hear from some schoolmates were in a dramatic contrast with the city that I knew and experienced. So ideas that the city was dangerous or devoid of culture or removed from cosmopolitan city life was in opposition actually to the Detroit that I knew and lived. So, um, you know, this was, this was something of interest to me. You know, this is like around the age of 10, 12, you know, that I'm sort of observing these contradictions. And so um, when it was time to go to high school, I very persuasively implored my parents to let me attend high school at a public school in Detroit instead of going to one of the um, suburban elite private schools that, um, you know, they had sort of been planning for me to attend. Um, and so, you know, I, I really wanted to go to high school in the city and, you know, I suppose you could say this was really the the start of my love affair with cities is um, wanting to go to school in the city for high school. And so I went to Cass Tech and Cass Tech. Um, so immediately from so Cass Tech is an elite public magnet school in Detroit. So around 3000 students and, you know, there's an admissions test to get in and you have to maintain a certain grade point average and adhere to a disciplinary code and address code to get in. And so it's this exclusive magnet school that draws, you know, the many of the most sort of privileged um, students in different ways from across the city. And... So it's this powerhouse of 
you know, teenage brilliance <laughs> and um, in, in the city of Detroit. But at the same time, the school is named after Lewis Cass. So immediately we are here again um, struggling with myths and mythology. So Cass Tech is this amazing elite public school but it's named for Lewis Cass, who was, uh, he held many governmental posts. He was the governor of the Michigan Territory for a number of years. He was a U.S. presidential candidate. Cass was also a U.S. senator, and um, he was also secretary of war for Andrew Jackson and helped to implement the genocide that's referred to sometimes as the Trail of Tears, you know, where at least 125,000 Native Americans, American indigenous people, lost their lives uh, being removed from their lands. And um, in addition to that, Lewis Cass uh, was a human trafficker. Uh, so I use the term human trafficking um, in, you know, it's to refer to enslavement of people. And in this case, we're talking about, of course, um, the enslavement of African-Americans. And uh, for me, it's important to use the term human trafficking to really highlight, you know, the fact that this is not simply a legal economic system, which it was, but this is actually the trafficking of humans and everything that goes along with that. Uh, when we hear that term today and we're so repulsed by human trafficking. So Lewis Cass was a human trafficker and um, he had a huge influence in Detroit. The Detroit's um, city park Belle Isle was actually named after his daughter, Belle, and numerous public monuments, including, um, and institutions, including the high school, Cass, where I attended, are named after Lewis Cass. I didn't learn this history while I was a student at Cass. It was never uh, discussed. So... Here we have this mythical, um, you know, sort of narrative of the school that's this bastion of talent and privilege in the city, you know, where actually the school is named after a white supremacist murderer who's been celebrated up until this day. Um, Recently, there have been calls from different academics um, and activists to rename institutions named after Cass. At any rate, this um, crystallizes this place name. Um, you know, we, when we think about place names or toponyms and how they reflect the, you know, relations, the institutions, and the ideologies of a time. This is really telling. So um, while I was at Cass and really, um, I, as I was saying before, I started this love affair with cities or I started this, I guess that sounds a bit 
uh, romantic and, and um, you know, perhaps a bit flowery, but really developed a deep interest in understanding cities. So the tapestry of the city's people was reflected in caste. So from language to, you know, race, nation, gender, social class, all of these different intersectional uh, ways in which people are hierarchized and experience the world um, and identify in the world in different ways or resist identification. Um, this was all reflected in the school. And so I, I saw how complicated the social and political landscape of Detroit was through all of the students, these 3,000 students. Um, and these contested the simplistic anti-Black myths that surrounded the city in the time. We're talking about, you know, the 90s, early 2000s, when it still was not cool to be from Detroit. People were ashamed to say that they were from Detroit. I never was. Uh, but, and, you know, I, I, I think that there was, you know, really uh, an anti-Black um, sort of ideological frame that exists to this day, but that I was becoming aware of um, at that time that was in direct contrast with the depth of the socio-political cultural landscape. And so at the same time, it was also clear to me how anti-Blackness shaped everyday life in Detroit across, you know, opportunities of access to education, housing, employment, across policing disparities and, um, you know, incarceration policies. So, you know, an example of this I can recall in the early 2000s, Cast Tech had a dress code that was literally enforced by police. There was a police force associated with the Detroit Public Schools and police patrolled uh, the school daily, policing students and, um, you know, surveying students as they entered the school. Um, you could be searched at any time. And believe it or not, CAS actually had relatively lax um, policing codes relative to numerous schools in the neighborhoods across the city, which are referred to as neighborhood high schools. So there weren't metal detectors that you had to walk through um, in general, you know, which was like at many schools, you had to pass through a metal detector like you're in the airport and be searched. So it cast the, even though the policing, as I look back, was egregious, um, You know, it was actually relatively lax in comparison. So this um, this was a shock after I, uh, you know, graduated from Gross Point Academy, where the the idea of students being policed would be absurd. And, um, you know, whereas middle schools and elementary schools in Detroit, where I have, um, you know, much later served as an artist in residence, um, they have metal detectors and police as well. So if you're thinking, well, maybe it's because the kids are younger. No. So um, I became aware of this as 
fundamental to how space is produced. And, you know, I, I don't think I would have called it the production of space at the time, but I started to develop an interest in how spaces are produced um, through reflecting on the spaces of Cass Tech, this public school that I attended for high school, and then, you know, Gross Point Academy. So, you know, in spite of all the brilliance at Cass Tech, the resources were inferior, the equipment was inferior, the, you know, the um, sort of access to the materiality of a high quality education was vastly inferior uh, to what I had experienced at an elementary and middle school. Um, And so, you know, and that was why I did not attend a, you know, public school in um, the earlier days of of Detroit's sort of, um, you know, process, urban process, was because of these disparities. And so um, really all of this is to say is as I was writing this book, I'm steeped in these sort of um, empirical and also ideological reflections on cities broadly, Detroit in particular, and in the United States generally. So history, political economy, ideas, doctrines, and myths are all central in how places and spaces are produced. So I um, really, in writing Liquor Store Theater, I was interested in sort of, in, you know, developing the project, Liquor Store Theater, the video project, I was interested in reflecting on all these different registers in a simultaneous frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, that was really interesting, and that was that's one of the, one of the really interesting things about the book is you learn so much about about Detroit, about the people, um, and about this complexity. Um, I, I myself lived in Ann Arbor, and I had the great fortune of getting to know Detroit while I lived in Michigan um, due to friends that I had. And I've, of course, I'm familiar with Cast Tech and um, with Renaissance. And I had no idea that that was the story of the name of Cast Tech. So I want to thank you for that. And, um, you know, and I think that's one of the really rich things about, about these kinds of discussions and, and learning about these things. Um, and so in talking about how your interest in how space is produced, um, so throughout the book or what kind of organizes the book is that you stage these dance performances around liquor stores in Detroit, um, as a catalyst to engage people. Um, I think you talk about it as being a prompt, um, for people and then you, you know, ask them questions, um, when they, when they approach you. And so I was wondering if you could just describe this method and how you came to develop it. Yes, Definitely. The word prompt is good for um, sort of, let's see, I guess making a space to discuss my method. So I, um, I avoid the word engage because I think engage, the word engage 
has um, an implication that there is necessarily um, or the, or an assumption that there will be some kind of an exchange that is perhaps um, pleasurable or perhaps um, you know framed in the in a sort of community activism kind of way. And so I like a prompt because what I really wanted to do was ask questions, um, ask questions of art, ask questions of anthropology, ask questions of the status of cities, the status of Detroit, and, um, you know, the status of the sort of um, global political economic frame. And so the the methods I draw from are um, primarily could be described, you know, in a disciplinary way across conceptual art, critical geography, and cultural anthropology. So, and I'll I'll just highlight a little bit of a of a tidbit of my method from I from each of those kind of uh, realms. Um, I don't think disciplinarily, but I guess it's, it's probably helpful, you know, in trying to discuss the project in a concrete and clear way. So in terms of um, conceptual art, so I, I, I'm, you know, both a conceptual artist and anthropologist. And so what method I really center um, in this conceptualist approach is the idea of process, the idea of time, and what I refer to as seriality, or doing the same thing over and over and over. So um, the process for me was really important. So I wanted to create this surreal framework where the idea of going into a community center and asking to interview people about city life is, you know, upended, where I wanted to take away a requirement or a sort of um, screening, pre-screening or limiting um, of potential participants by being out on the street in public space. And so process in terms of starting what I call this ethnographic prompt, I call it, sometimes I call it a a dancerly prompt. Um, This process of offering something to potential um, conversants, you know, is, I guess, um, is appealing because people can take it or leave it and even if they leave it, there's something that's, um, you know, being offered. And um, there's something that I was interested in doing because our sort of perspectives and frameworks are so sculpted and shaped by doctrine, by myth, by fable, you know, um, I wanted to sort of 
open up a space where it's like, what the, I guess it's a podcast. I won't, I'll try not to, you know, drop any F-bombs, but what is going on? Um, You know, what is going on here? This is weird. I wanted that. And not in some kind of a fetishized way um, or a trendy way, but in a way of like, this is weird and it makes me think. So it's an invitation. So the the conceptual process really um, prioritizes, for me, it prioritizes the process over the product. So at any given video shoot, you know, there may be nobody who talks to me because I never approach people ever. Um, So I, you know, process, there's some rules to a process. So one of these rules, I won't list them all. um, But one of the rules to my process was that I would never approach people and ask them to interview them Um, in between the staged performances that you'll see in the liquor store theater videos, um, you know, of course we would pause and, you know, I would be gathering footage of the surrounding area, what we call B roll, or I would be, you know, resetting the shot, um, or, you know, just, you know, organizing my consent forms for people who may end up wanting to talk whatever it is, it gave these little breaks in between the performances, gave people an opportunity to approach and say, what are you doing? What's going on? And say, well, making a series of videos about city life in Detroit, um, interspersed with performances, would you like to talk? And, um, you know, so it would always be after they approached and expressed interest so that was an important rule of, of the process. Another important rule was I never asked permission, never asked permission of the store owners, store managers, um, would very deliberately use the streets and sidewalk spaces, public spaces, not block egress, um, you know, wouldn't record footage of anybody without their expression of wanting to be in the footage you know, other than somebody walking by, but the camera's clearly displayed. So if someone knows if they walk right in front of the camera that's rolling, they're going to be in the frame. And so people would make those decisions and just, you know, not walk in the frame if they didn't want to be in the frame. Um, So, so those are some of the, I guess, um, some of the conceptual sort of, um, elements of of my method and you know of course with conceptual art we're referring to the contemporary art movement emergent in the 1960s and um you know one of the founders of which is adrian piper who is a philosopher and artist that Um, they study, um, you know, intersections of power and, um, sort of life, um, really broadly. And so, uh, Piper was part of the, 
the, the, um, and who I consider the founder of conceptual art. There are other names um, that I'm, I'm not going to list here, but this is really at its core. Conceptual art and Piper's work are interested in raising questions among the power that institutions hold, the ideas that people hold, and how these ideas um, circulate. Um, so, so that's, you know, you know, and conceptual art is, you know, expressed in, um, or sort of the, the medium are quite open, right? So performance, video, painting. Um, I have current a current conceptual project um, that is actually neon sculpture called 1526. So, <clears throat> So shifting to methods in critical geography, um, the project fundamentally is interested in how spaces are um, ordered, how spaces are produced and reproduced, how spaces are contested. And so this little note of the liquor store is a fascinating note in the city of Detroit and um, so, you know, a critical geographic approach from a methodological perspective is interested in the history, the um, materiality, the, the ways in which relationships of ownership and labor um, really are um, sort of reflected in the conditions on the streets how philosophy is reflected in the conditions of the streets. So the critical geographic methods require an analysis of, you know, political economy. So who holds the power to make laws um, and to um, avail economic resources or withhold economic resources. And so cultural anthropology, of course, um, you know, is, is a, a major, um, factor in my project as well. And so some of the anthropological methods that I draw on, and this goes for sort of the methods that I work through across the board. Um, I'm really interested in probing what it is that these methods reflect or fail to reflect and how so at the methodological level how I can um, both address a research question what is the struggle for the city in Detroit what's going on in Detroit why um, is there a public narrative of Detroit that is incredibly anti-black, you know, from the beginning of the city, which we'll talk about up until the present day. And so this cultural anthropological approach in terms of my method is really, I think, um, incredibly interdisciplinary and multimodal, um, you know, drawing across this historical materialist, um, practice of 
cultural anthropology um, in which context is key. So thinking about um, situating and contextualizing the sort of underlying um, holistic framework, I guess. Um, Maybe that's not the best word, but so um, really gaining an understanding across multiple spheres, um, the economic, the political, the historical, you know, the, the socio-cultural and sort of, um, prioritizing the people in my analysis. Um, so I, um, and I also, you know, so of course there are, are, are methods that are associated with, um, cultural anthropology, um, you know, that are important. But I think one thing that's important to highlight um, even more so is that, you know. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Anthropology as a discipline is emergent from the same white supremacist framework that, um, you know, Lewis Cass um, sort of, was in which Lewis Cass was emergent and the, the sort of, um, Lewis Cass's lifespan from the late, um, 18th century until the mid 19th century, um, aligns with the white supremacist formation of anthropology in the United States. And even, you know, it even follows on the heels of the white supremacist formation of German anthropology via philosophical anthropology in the early writings of Kant, for instance. Um, You know, so this, I think, is really critical, you know, to sort of, um, in drawing from methods you know, I guess the, as uh, more, rel- if, you know, sorry, I got a little blurred there. <laughs> but um, in terms of drawing from cultural anthropology, I'm really interested in critiquing the history of anthropology and critiquing the failures of the history of anthropology, which is that Americanist anthropology um still struggles to come to terms with its, um, you know, necessary connection to European enlightenment, philosophical anthropology and the formation of the human. It's still, we still sort of start a history of anthropology um, in the United States. If we're, even if we're doing well, um, you know, with, 
you know, figures like Josiah Knott and, um, you know, Louise Agassiz and um, Samuel Morton, who, you know, definitely codified white supremacy into the anthropological um, knowledge. But even prior to that, there's a longer history that's actually um, really critical to understanding how we think about who is human and what it, so how can we even fathom this question anthropology likes to spout? What does it mean to be human if we don't even understand how the human was formed and who it was intended to exclude and who it was intended to include? So I'm thinking about, I guess, so in terms of my method, um, anthropology has a relatively longer um, sort of time scale um, as a discipline than the other two disciplines that I mentioned, which are, you know, just a few of my areas of interest. So at any rate, so the methods, there's almost like a method and an unmethod. Um, there's an unmaking. And I, I do think of liquor store theater as a call for the end of anthropology in a way, but of course, I have my PhD in anthropology, and many of the people listening to this program do as well, and you do as well. And so, of course, you know, I'm quite um, motivated for anthropology to uh, remain a vigorous intellectual site. I think in order for it to do so, we must um, innovate our methods in ways that uh, both critique the past and also um, open up spaces for critical thought. Um, and I and to me that means that means a reckoning with this um, replication of what um, has been done, uh, you know, decade after decade and project after project. Uh, by bright green anthropologists. Um, I have a problem with that replication. You know, I want to see projects that are off the wall, um, risky in terms of the researcher putting themselves at risk. And I don't mean at risk of great bodily harm. Um, But I think so often we've put the, you know, experts that are in the field of study, the people are put more at risk and more in the balance. And so that's a little bit on method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm so glad you um, talked about um, Adrian Piper in, uh, in that discussion. I went to see the retrospective at, the, uh, at MoMA a couple years ago, and it was, it was very, very powerful. And I can see the connections between um, her work and, and your, your work as well. And so I'm going to jump to this uh, question of the Heidelberg Project, and I'm going to mention another artist from Detroit, which is Tyree Guyton. And you, and you mentioned this in the book, you're in the vicinity of the Heidelberg Project, um, which is a large-scale installation where Tyree Guyton decorates houses um, and the surrounding area with found objects. And just for those listening, um, as an example, the Heidelberg Project has this, he takes this house, and it's called like the Polka Dot House, and he 
paints this entire house with polka dots and another house he covers with stuffed animals. And I think it's called like the teddy bear house, right? And so basically he takes these whole city blocks and makes them into this um, large scale installation. And, um, and so you mentioned in your book, you have this idea that goes throughout the book called the paradox of place, which includes how people from inside of the neighborhood um, are generally very critical of the Heidelberg, Heidelberg project, um, whereas those who are outside of the neighborhood or even outside of Detroit or even outside of Michigan would hail the Heidelberg project as art. Um, and you talk about that as being part of this idea of the paradox of place. And so I was wondering if you could talk about this idea that you have of the paradox of place and how it plays out um, in your in your analysis. Paradox of place is a theory of place. It's an analytic of place that I developed in the course of writing this book and in the course of um, learning from people on the streets and sidewalks and learning from history. And so what paradox of place works to do is works to analyze at the metaphysical the philosophical and the and at the level of the historical materialist or dialectic materialist level. So when I'm referring to metaphysical, I'm referring to the ideas, the perceptions of reality, to phenomena that transcend the physical world, um, but that become a part of the physical world because of the importance of the structure of people's cognition, the structure of cognition. So at the philosophical level, I'm interested in the production of truth, the formation of the human, which we were just talking about with the history of anthropology, truth, how truth is produced through reasoning outside of the empirical. Okay, so that's the second level. And then the third level is at the level of dialectical materialism, which you can also, I I use interchangeably with the term historical materialism. And so this is the the theory, the proven theory, I think. Um, And we'll talk about this. But that political, economic, and historical events are contradictory, apparently, but that they result from the way that labor and capital or labor and ownership of modes of production are structured. So in other words, history and what, you know, although we may not even receive the full history, the history that we can feel and that we can observe around us, if that's the only level of um, access even, is a result of the underlying terms of a society's capital structure. So that is um, modes of production and relationships or relations of production actually shape historical events. So with paradox of place, I'm asking for us to think about place and space through these three levels at one time. So it is asking a lot. So thinking the metaphysical, 
the philosophical and the dialectical materialist registers of places um, all at one time. And so, you know, it's, it is requesting quite a lot. I think of this as a um, really a way of thinking through place and space in a way that's deepening and uh, revelatory and situating and contextualizing. So Detroit is, you know, reflective of this unity of opposites. And I think, you know, some of the key ideas of dialectical materialism, then they, they lean toward my paradox of place analytic, which is, um, you know, the, in particular of particular importance is the law of the unity of opposites, you know, otherwise known as the law of the negation of the negation. Mm -hmm. So it's this, um, yeah, it's this relationship where, you know, the, the relationship between exploited labor, for instance, and the, you know, owners of the capital, right? So there's this sort of tense and conflicting relationship where actually the two sides of one coin become one and not in an obvious way, right? But what we forget is, is what exactly has to happen for, um, for this to, to occur. So anti-blackness and white supremacy, which are, you know, analogous terms, um, are the foundations of Detroit. And so Detroit is a city as a result of that, um, as a result of that dialectic, which is one thing, and also, you know, a, a set of oppositions, the result of that is we have this contradictory space of immense wealth and immense impoverishment and this contradictory knowledge of history uh, where myth and erasure reign free and huge gaps of information and history prevail. So Detroit embodies the paradox of place that also, um, you know, is reflected in the United States. And so I offer the paradox of place as a way of analyzing um, situations and scenes and spaces and places. We could, for instance, use the paradox of place analytic to study the um, terrorist riot that just occurred at the nation's capital um, recently. So that, that event embodies the paradox of place, but before, I don't know if we will talk about that before, if we do, um, I'll, I'll turn back to Detroit for a moment, which is to say that Detroit resides on the ancestral homeland of three Anishinaabe nations of people the indigenous people uh, from the Ojibwe group, 
the Ottawaji group and the Potawatomi group. So um, Detroit is often referred to as being established by the French in 1701. However, you know, for centuries prior to this, the Anishinaabe people resided in their land um, of this territory that came to later be known as Detroit. So um, in 1701, when the French established their settlement in Detroit, the Anishinaabe people still, you know, held the ownership of their land. And um, over the course of the 18th century, there were a number of events um, where um, indigenous people were, you know, the Anishinaabe people were attacked, you know, 1733, 1752 smallpox outbreaks produced genocide on the population. The majority of the population uh, was, in fact, Anishinaabe people, around 2,000 people. Um, in 1701, when the French, there were a handful of, of, of uh, settlers versus the 2,000. But the population was decimated over the course of the, those two uh, smallpox pandemics. Um, you know, genocide, to be more accurate. And um, in the... 1754 French and Indian um, War. There was like a seven year seven years of pressure where the British troops um, worked to take command of Detroit. So we have this framework where there's more and more pressure uh, being placed. So meanwhile, at the same time. In 1751, a population census was taken, um, and the Native American population had already been significantly decimated. The population was around 500 people, and around 35 people were enslaved Native Americans and African Americans. So African Americans in Detroit um, were present from as early as the 16th and 17th century, and they there were, in fact, African-American human trafficking victims um, at that time, and slavery was very much alive and well and legal and part of the economic framework of the city, as we talked about. Um, Lewis Cass was a human trafficker, and so... We have in 1778 around 2,000 people in the city and close to 200 people were enslaved. Um, the, I believe the number is actually 150 people um, were enslaved people and increasingly African-American. So by the time, um, you know, the American Revolution happened and the British surrendered Detroit, And then we're talking uh, 10, 15 years later, the um, land of the Anishinaabe people was seized. But this is 1807. And um, so the the land was purchased by the city of Detroit or seized by the city of Detroit at two cents an acre. 
$10,000. The Anishinaabe people's land was stolen for that cost. So, um, and, and when you hear 1807, it just sounds like, wow, that was incredibly recent. And so, mm-hmm. of course, human trafficking was still legal at that time, and it remained legal in Detroit until 1837. Um, so following uh, the uh, several key events, which I'll talk about actually before I talk about 1837. So African-American people um, and Native American people were, of course, resisting these egregious um, genocide and human trafficking situations. But the white supremacist foundation for Detroit, which is what I'm trying to say, was established. The anti-Black foundation of Detroit was established. And this is this a secret, this secret about Detroit that is still so difficult to communicate to people and to tell people. There's, you know, people have these uh, sort of myths and doctrines that supersede the empirical reality of history that's documented through uh, legislation and through court records and through census archives and through land deeds. And so the 1833 um, is a key year, which I'll mention, and it's discussed extensively in the book. There's an event called the Blackburn Rebellion in Detroit, where a couple, a married couple, uh, Ruth and Thornton Blackburn, actually were able to escape human trafficking um, situation, you know, and come to Detroit, where they, um, it, slavery was actually still legal in Detroit, but they were able to escape um I believe they were in Kentucky before. And so they came and sought refuge in Detroit, which they, they did find, but they were pursued by human traffickers. Um, so in this pursuit from the human traffickers, there became there a court case emerged. And this court case unfolded about a mile from the liquor store theater neighborhood, McDougal Hunt on Detroit's east side. And, um, So there was a rebellion where African-Americans and their allies really, um, you know, they established a a highly um, sort of um, complicated plan to secure the Blackburns' um, safety, essentially. And you can read about this in the book in detail because... I, I can't uh, use all of our time to describe their their um, escape, but they were able to escape um, the captors and actually um, were able to retain their freedom. And so the Blackburn Rebellion was key because coalitions of abolitionists and um, actually formed um, it, in during this time and following it. So in 1836 and 1837, um, there was the Second Baptist Church was formed, which was the first Black Baptist congregation. And it was a key organizer and operative and, um, you know, 
administrative, logistical force in the Underground Railroad, the, the historic Second Baptist Church. And so 13 um, formerly human trafficked people were the founders of this church, and they actually helped to amend a new state constitution in 1837, which uh, was the ban of slavery, human trafficking in, in the territory of Michigan and in Detroit. So it's like, um, it's a striking history and a paradox of place where many people in Detroit are not aware that genocide and human trafficking are the foundations of the city and what allow immigrants from Germany and Ireland and Italy, um, you know, and Holland to come to Detroit and be relatively well-received the anti-black framework is what produces this. And so the population of Detroit um, was still around this time around, it was in 1840, about 9,000 people. And then speeding forward to 1870, 80,000 people and still majority white. It wasn't until 1870, right around 1870, 1869, I think, um, to be exact, that Detroit began admitting black children to public schools. But we know that, of course, black children had been in Detroit for at least 200 years by that time. So speeding forward, um, so, you know, speeding forward in interest of time, and much of this history is discussed in the book, um, you know, Detroit around 1880 is around 115,000 people, just 20 years later, close to 300,000 people. And so 1900, one of the biggest cities in the United States, I think the second largest. And so black people start coming to Detroit to escape the even more egregious, um, you know, post reconstruction and Jim Crow, policies of lynching and economic deprivation and all forms of, you know, physical and economic uh, and violence upon quality of life. So people started to come to Detroit looking for, for relief. Of course, what they found was a Northern brand of Jim Crow and anti-blackness, um, you know, which is, equally, of course, oppressive, but in different ways. However, what happened around this time is key, is that um, the real estate, uh, the National Real Estate Board um, actually formed in 1908 as Black people started moving to northern cities and Rust Belt cities and were what we now would refer to as Rust Belt cities. Obviously, then we wouldn't. Black people were excluded by the law from desirable real estate markets, from any real estate market where white people had gained a foothold, and the city was deliberately segregated, beginning at the 
earliest moment of the 20th century. So the city was actually structured according to anti-Black geographic apartheid from the start. So it didn't take what many people think of as, you know, the automotive industries, compression and suburbanization, or the um, sort of, you know, resultant um, neoliberalization of the commons. It didn't take those forces for Detroit to become anti-Black. Detroit was already intensely anti-Black from the start and has never stopped. And so, um, you know, when we move into, and I talk about this in the book, there are cities in Detroit like Livonia, um, which in, you know, were deliberately structured so that they had something like 0.00001% you know, African-American residents because it was made impossible by virtue of racially restricted covenants, by virtue of um, guidelines established by the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, uh, made impossible for black people to access credit markets and housing or even if they had the cash. And so I talk in detail in the book about some of these circumstances and many of these acts of Congress and federal and state and local statutes, as well as terrorist, um, white supremacist mob violence, um, which, you know, where black people were murdered or forced from their homes or unjustly um, prosecuted for defending themselves amidst um, the, these very personal yet very political and broad struggles for the city. Yeah, that's one of the things I thought was um, just so important about the book is that so many times in Detroit, um, in a way, when I would talk to people, I would hear sort of the, the people would sort of pinpoint the Detroit uprisings or the Detroit rebellion as a, as a, a pivotal moment. But your book takes us back um, much longer, um, way before that moment, um, and really gives us that historical context and shows us how um, these forces have been at play in the city, as we just as we just talked about, for much longer um, than what people usually usually talk about in the general conversation. Let's see. So the project unfolds chronologically, and you take us through a series of performances from 2014 until 2018. And during this time, Detroit undergoes a series of changes. And as I said previously, um, I lived in Ann Arbor from 2012 to 2017, and also noticed how there were all of these new restaurants coming into Detroit, um, artists were moving into the city, and the city seemed to really just be undergoing this, this period, what people kind of talk about as a rebirth. And so um, how did these changes figure into your project, and how did your interlocutors uh, view these changes in the city? My interlocutors across all of the years of the project were incredibly alert and abreast and attuned to what was happening um, 
in the political economic framework and in this, you know, materialist dialectic of, you know, in terms of the unity of opposites, um, the law of opposites, these observations figured central. So it's, it, you know, and so during the course of the project from 2014 to 2019, the city was just emerging from bankruptcy and the city um, actually was in the throes of the Detroit water crisis and the city actually had um, a tax foreclosure crisis bubbling, which we're now, um, you know, seeing unfold more and more where, you know, black homeowners were overtaxed to the tune of about a billion dollars. And many people forced out of their homes as a result of um, tax foreclosures. So an example of this is um, that we talked a little bit about Belle Isle before, which is named after the human trafficker, Louis Cass's daughter, whose name was Belle. So Belle Isle um, was actually owned by the Anishinaabe people, the indigenous people, uh, well into the 18th century. Um, The British acquired it in 1769. The city didn't acquire Belle Isle until 1879, and the city held Belle Isle is a park about seven square miles. Um, and for people who don't know, it's a little island just off of the city. It was a city park for over 100 years. And so the state acquired control of Belle Isle in 2014 as the city was trying to generate cash um, as part of its bankruptcy emergence process. And so part of what the state takeover of Belle Isle did was it wrote an anti-Black production of space into the everyday. And so you would read the Detroit News or the Free Press, local papers, or even some national press, and you would hear people saying things like, Belle Isle is so much cleaner. Belle Isle is so much calmer since the state takeover. Belle Isle is so much more peaceful since the state takeover. And what people are really saying is, you know, Belle Isle is so much less black. So it's actually an anti-black narrative that is crystal clear. And so there were requirements, you know, policing requirements, like you have to have a certain registration code for your vehicle in order to drive onto the island. And whereas, of course, you know, people would go to Belle Isle for leisurely you know, purposes, um, there was a, you know, this strict enforcement of, oh, absolutely no alcohol at all on the island, Um, which, you know, of course, people, those are policies at parks, but um, people figure, you know, if they're discreet in this space, they'll be given their their sort of, um, you know, enjoyment of their personal surroundings. And that was you know, upended with the state uh, requirement. And so the, the policing of people's exact mile per hour rate that they're driving. 
All of these things changed. And people, to give a specific example, as soon as this shifted legislatively, people on the streets in the videos were talking about Belle Isle and how, you know, now there's a fee to get on Belle Isle. Now it's not safe to go on Belle Isle. Now you can get tickets and your car can be impounded if you obtain, you know, tickets. And, you know, people um, spoke with the, with all of this um, sort of rich history of Belle Isle as an ecological, environmental space of importance, of a, a, a green landscape in the center of the city, free and accessible to all, and how this was um, upended by the state takeover. So people um, seem to be theorizing the paradox of place in front of my very eyes. Same thing with the water crisis. People, as the water crisis was emerging, which if people aren't familiar, um, the city of Detroit enacted a campaign to reduce um, its cash burn and to increase cash. And so they said, if you owe $150 or more on your water bill, we're going to shut it off if you're a residential client. For corporate clients, not so much. Corporate clients had hundreds of thousands of dollars in arrears, and they were allowed to continue accessing their water. So um, around 200,000 Detroiters have had water insecurity over the past seven years now as a result of this. And only was the water... um, only has the there been an interest in turning on water for everyone in the city upon the event of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic, where the governor said, we got to turn on all the water so that people can wash their hands. I don't know if that has been implemented um, or how that, that would be implemented. But at any rate, um, people were discussing the water crisis day in and day out in front of the liquor stores. Um, and they were discussing their relationship with water broadly and, um, you know, the riverfront and how the riverfront is now being monopolized by real estate speculators and investors. And um, so this dialectic, um, this unity of opposites and, Ultimately, um, you know, these, this paradox of place, it's, it's like these relationships that seem so absurd. Detroit is next to 20% of the world's fresh water, surface fresh water reserves. 20%. It's incredible. The whole world, this little city of, you know, 600,000 people. It's incredible. And yet we've got 200,000 people who have had a lack of access to water and 60 miles away in Flint, we've had children genocided due to access to contaminated water again at the, at the um, desire to save cash. And that's a complicated relationship um, as well between the Detroit and Flint water crises, which is also discussed in the book. So I suppose, you know, there's no way to sum up in one uh, sort of 
response to an interview question, how sort of people viewed the changes. But overall, I would say people viewed the changes with an awareness of the relationship between anti-Black policy and the everyday and how this impacted their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those contradictions are quite striking. Um, And it was very clear that people were were well aware of what was going on from your, um, from from in the book and the the voices of the people who you talk with and interact with, um, you know, as part of, as, as part of the the research are, are clear and they're just wonderful to read and to hear their stories and hear what they have to say. Um, And so the, the last question is about um, your art practice and so the book really provides a great example of what people are talking about now is experimental ethnography or multimodal methods. And as you've already talked about, you use your video camera to record your interviews with people and your performances with the dancers. And so we get a taste of that in the book through the pictures. Um, but where are the videos collected or where have they been screened? And how does this project fit within your larger art practice? The foreword to the book is written by Christopher Y. Liu, who is the Nancy and Fred Poses curator at the Whitney Museum of American Art. And I came to know Chris uh, several years ago when he and his co-curator, Mia Locks, decided to include my liquor store theater video project as part of the Whitney Biennial of 2017, which the Whitney Biennial is the, um, by, of course, biannually occurring um, survey of American art. um, And it's that's undertaken by the Whitney Museum, and it's considered a barometer of what's happening in contemporary art um, and the art world. And so Liquor Store Theater was included in that exhibition in 2017. And um, one of the videos, one of the Liquor Store Theater videos, uh, volume two, number two, was acquired as part of the Whitney Museum's permanent collection. And um, so the videos have been seen since 2017 globally. They've uh, been seen in museums and in galleries. And one thing that has bothered me about that is that as I was conducting the video project and making videos, I was writing the book. And the book is continues before the cameras turn on. The book starts before the cameras turn on, hundreds of years before. And then the book continues um, after the cameras turn off. So when you're watching a liquor store theater video, you're really just seeing these five minutes of what happened this is not a statement. None of the videos 
are intended to be a statement of um, here's Detroit in five minutes. They're the opposite of that. They're this level of complexity you will not be able to grasp in five minutes. And so um, simultaneously, I was writing the book, which discusses my relationships with people that I follow into their neighborhoods in a more classical sort of, um, you know, anthropological way as um, we became intermeshed in one another's lives. And they, you know, revealed to me some of their, um, you know, logic of the day-to-day, if you will. Um, So the videos are, um, they've also been collected by um, the Cranbrook Art Institute, um, the Cranbrook Art Museum. And um, so the work has been seen really broadly at contemporary art museums um, and international art fairs and the like. Um, And so, and also my current project, which is called 1526, um, and it's a series of neon sculptures that meditate and analyze key events, um, key historical events from the year 3550 BCE to present. And so um, the, this uh, body of work is, is um, in the permanent collection at the Kalamazoo Art Institute. Um, the curator at the Kalamazoo Art Institute is, is quite interested in um, work that is asking questions around gender and race and nation and ability and access. And so these are some of the central questions to the 1526 series. Um, So the series begins in the year 3550 BCE when the first book in the world was written by the philosopher Patahotep in Egypt, Africa. And so the oldest book in the world is from this continent that is relegated to, you know, a a status that's abject when actually this is the oldest book in the world. Um, This is the foundation of civilization. This is the foundation of all philosophy. And so um, these neon sculptures, that's that sculptural piece is called a blank that defies gravity and so it's a uh, if you if people can look at some of this work, um, there can be some links perhaps given. But the the work is ten neon yellow tubes and a postcard with the information about the papyrus priests, which is the oldest book in the world, and the philosopher who created it. And so I have this um, way of aligning a date or an abstract sculpture with a postcard that details the information around that date or sculpture um, as a way of what I think of as um, really contesting myths, presenting facts, 
And across my work, it's this strange juxtaposition. I guess it's a unity of opposites where I'm deeply invested in empiricism, in data, in numbers, in dates, in specific facts that can't be disputed, right? Whether or not you agree or disagree, Lewis Cass was a human trafficker who had a hand in genociding 125,000 indigenous people and enslaving African-American people, right? It's It's an empirical fact. And this is the foundation of Detroit as we know it. Detroit is an anti-Black city. The liquor stores are anti-Black sites. And these are empirical facts. I like to make it very weird when I pursue a project, open up the framework to see, well, how might these empirical facts align with the reality that we're experiencing? Well, thank you for that. Um, so we'll have to add some some links into the um, into the into the website to to let people know where they can see all of your your current projects. Did you want to talk about any projects that you have on the horizon coming up? Anything that you're working on um, for the future? Perfect. Okay, so I'll um, I'll restart my response to that. Currently, I'm working on the 1526 project that I was describing. Um, And so to give a bit of a bit more of a framework, um, there are, uh, again, it's this dialectic that I'm interested in. It's a series of neon sculptures that actually has two streams. And one stream is the 1526 series, which these are, if you can have a picture in your mind of four numbers, which comprise a year, of course. Um, And these numbers are in what I call buttercream neon. They're about four inches tall by about six inches long. And so you can envision The piece, uh, say, for instance, one of the pieces in the series is 1934, which I discuss actually in the Liquor Store Theater book. It's the year that the Housing Act of Congress was established, which effectively barred Black people from participating in residential mortgage markets and gave away billions upon billions of dollars to white people to acquire homes at extremely low interest rates and to build generational wealth that forms the wealth gap that we have yet today. So I'm interested in these empirical facts um, because they're indisputable. And I'm, I really, um, wish to be in conversation with a broad audience that includes probably a majority of people who disagree with the idea that the United States is an anti-Black, anti-democratic, anti-Indigenous, vapidly white supremacist place. I want to be in dialogue with those people, but I also want to be in dialogue 
with those people who uh, understand the reality around them already and feel a sense of relief when they can see in neon lights the truth that's been hidden and the truth that's been erased by a structural violence, the erasure. I want people to feel a sense of relief on the one hand, and I want people to feel a sense of cold, hard facts on the other. So this project is, um, and then there's this dialectic because this project also includes abstract neon sculptures that take on different color, different form, and, you know, are not based on a numerical system. Um, so that series is called A Blank That Defies Gravity. And I talked a little bit about uh, the inaugural piece in that series that um, marks the development of the oldest book in the world. And again, it's this, in this space I'm interested in, um, you know, really opening up questions, opening up dialogue, but I frame that dialogue and that unity of opposites with facts. And that's really important to me. Great. So we'll have to look out for that work and those dialogues are uh, becoming more important by the, by the day. And so uh, that's really important work that's opening up really important conversations that we, that are ongoing and they need to, to take place. So I've been speaking with Maya Stovall about her book, Liquor Store Theater, published by Duke University Press. Thank you for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you for, for the great conversation.